I have to confess, uh, I had a little bit of trepidation about returning to the congregation at Santa Clarita. That trepidation had to do with my concern that I wasn't here to install yet a new pastor for you. And I was afraid that I might be met with raw eggs and rotten tomatoes, (laughs) hisses and boos, and uh, recrimination. Uh, I can tell you, uh, I'm very aware, uh, I just have to say this because I know it's on some people's minds, Uh, we will be meeting with your committee again in a, a week or so, and I hope to have a few names. We have struck out a couple of times, but God knows who your next pastor is going to be, and I take comfort in that. So, having expressed my fears, I also want to express my joys. It's really wonderful to be back, to see all of you and your smiling faces, and to be hugged and to hug and to reconnect in this very deep and special uh, relationship, friendship that we have developed through the years in the body of Christ and the way in which that supports and nourishes this community here in Santa Clarita. So it's great to, great to be with you. Good to be back. It is Mother's Day tomorrow. It is also uh, that time of the year in which the Christian church recognizes and celebrates the ascension of Christ. We spend an awful lot of time as a church, as a people, thinking about what it means for Christ to have come in the flesh. We spend some time on the incarnation. We're interested in the babe of Bethlehem. We spend some time talking about what it must have been like for Jesus to grow up a human. We spend time on the beginning of his ministry and all that was to be accomplished through that ministry. We talk about his disciples, his life, his movements, his teachings, his miracles. We talk about his wisdom. We talk about his power. We talk about his passion. We recount the shortness of that ministry and the terrible political, social, religious things that led to the desire on the parts of both the Roman government and the Jewish Sanhedrin to see him dead. We talk about his betrayal, about the Last Supper. We talk about his journey to Golgotha, his crucifixion. We talk about his death and the meaning of that for our lives, and we talk about the grave in which he was laid. We spend time on the resurrection, maybe not enough, and the wonderful way in which that resurrection represents the resurrection all of us may may expect. We talk about the journey of the disciples from despair to renewed faith, from a lack of power to power as they go through this period of time in which Jesus is with them post-resurrection, and then the early church is formed. But we tend to give only a footnote to the ascension. 
And if we think about it carefully, we're really looking at the entire scope of a story, aren't we? We know from the writings of Ellen White that even before the earth was created, God had in place a plan for the salvation of humankind should they fall. We know that when God created, he made everything perfect. He declared it good. We know that in our scriptures, within a very few chapters of that, we see humankind in disobedience and rebellion, in mistrust and in fear of the God who made them and loved them and fellowshiped with them and walked with them. We see an Eden and a garden from which they are banished, a paradise lost, and a new reality. We see the institution of a sacrificial system and the birth and emergence of a people and a religious faith. We see a prophetic guidance and word and patriarchal wisdom and counsel as we journey through Scripture. We see prophecies that foretell the coming of Jesus. And we apply those. And as he comes, we shake our heads and wonder as Christians in the 21st century that those living in the first century could be so blind to who he was. We know, though, that the end of the story takes us back to a different kind of place. As Adventists, we teach Jesus is coming again. And he comes again because he came the first time. And he comes again because he's gone to another place. And he comes again, this time, not as a human, but as a glorified and risen king. He comes not in vulnerability, he comes in power. He comes not with an eye now to save, but he comes to judge. We know that there's a judgment, a destruction, but we also know that there's a recreation the Edenic state re-identified and restored. This whole arch of the story takes us from a time in which there was nothing but the will of God and his glory to a time again when there will be nothing but the will of God and his glory. And it's that part of the story that I think we forget. I don't know about you, I get lost in the routines of life. This enters my consciousness and makes so little a difference in the way in which I usually live. I'm a creature of habit. I appreciate my sleep. I appreciate my food. A little too much still. I appreciate my freedom and mobility. I engage many things wholeheartedly. I am, by virtue of my gender, I think, and sex, when I watch TV, I don't multitask. I focus completely on watching TV. <laughs> Any of you men relate? 
yeah, okay. You know, I'm focused. I, I give my attention fully to something. When I am studying, I'm engaged in school. When I'm working, I'm immersed in that. When I'm sad about something or lost about something or angry about something, I'm fully experiencing those things in the moments in which they're happening. I'm very aware of family. What's my wife doing? Where's my son? How is he doing? What's going on with him? What's happening with my colleagues and work? What are the realities I need to be aware of as I enter that environment? Is the freeway plugged or open? Do I need to take surface streets? Should I check Google Maps? I'm very plugged in more than ever. Milton and I were discussing this briefly just a minute ago. The blessing and the curse of the Internet. You can know everything in just a few minutes. I was doing a little fact-checking, and he had his phone, and he just, there it is, done. Knowledge, like that. Wis uh, but there's no wisdom. It's difficult for me to slow down long enough to breathe and to remember and to reflect and to be informed and to think about the greater realities to which I'm to be attuned and called. So that's a long preamble. But I want you to kind of come at this or, or hear the mindset at which I'm approaching this and why it might make a difference. If we believe that Christ coming in the first place, taking on flesh and becoming one of us, living his life in that context, ministering in that context, Dying in that context makes a difference. If we, like Paul, can affirm that our hope is pegged on the resurrection, if there's no resurrection, there's no point to any of this. But I would say by extension, not only if there's no resurrection, there's no point to any of this, if there's no ascension, there's no point to any of this. Jesus goes back to his Father. He goes back to a place at the Father's right hand. He goes back to the place having been glorified, and he goes back to the place where now again he sits as king on the throne. The word in Greek doesn't mean anything to us, but it's a great, I love the sound of it anyway, doxa, glory. He is in glory doesn't seem to have much to do with my daily reality. What glory is there in the routines of living? But I think it's relevant, and I'll tell you why. Not only does it pertain to the meaning of the resurrection, not only is this place of glory the place from which the judgment occurs, and the redemption of the saints, the very end of time occurs. But this place of glory is something we participate in, in the here and in the now. This place of glory is a place of hope. This place of glory is a place of advocacy for you and I here, now, stuck in the mundane stuck in the routine, preoccupied with our physical existences and all the cares of life, saddened, overwhelmed by our losses, 
angry about our defeats. He is in glory. I want to look at a couple of texts this morning. You heard the psalm. It's a very, very uh, happy one, Psalm 93, 1-5. I want us to go to another very happy one this morning because it begins to flesh out a little bit why we might be rejoicing. Psalm 47, I'll give you a second to look that up. Psalm 47, for those of you who don't know your Bibles terribly well, it's about a third of the way into the book. Approximately a third of the way into the book. Psalm 47. We've set this to music. Do any of you know it? Clap your hands, all ye nations, shout unto God with loud hosanna. Clap your hands, all ye... You know that one? Okay. We've set it to music. Or at least part of it. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome. The great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us. Peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. There's a word here that's very interesting. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. We're talking here very... Um, practically speaking, about a psalm referring to God as king and sovereign over all other gods. This was a psalm and a song that was meant to communicate the supremacy and superiority of the Israelite God over all other gods, the God who had called them and the God who had chosen them and the God who had given Jacob a name. Remember, Jacob wrestles with God and is given a new name, and that name is Israel. This psalm acknowledges the ascendancy of Israel's God over all other gods. That's the actual context of this psalm. But it's used on Ascension Weekend because it refers to the ascension of God and we extrapolate that forward and see a prophetic thread here for we're talking about a God who descends and condescends to be among us but ascends back on high. It's part of the story. It's part of the victory. It's part of the restoration. We sing him a song not just because he's God or because he's condescended to be with us or because he's been victorious in the cross or resurrected. We sing him a song because he has ascended on high. He is now king of kings and Lord of lords. He is now seated in authority and power. And he is the one who has named us and called us and chosen us and blessed us and saved us.
I want to turn to our text, which was just read a few minutes ago in Luke, Luke 24, 44. I'm going to start in verse 45. Jesus told them, but before we get to that, listen to what that preamble to the scripture says. He opened their minds so that they could understand that which they had read. Jesus is now on his way out and he's recapping for them after having been born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, Egypt, and then Nazareth, after beginning a ministry, after being hailed a prophet, hailed a Messiah, welcomed as a king, having been crucified, having been resurrection, having been resurrected, excuse me, having been with them, here's what it says. He opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and, the, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And we have a clue. Since Luke and Acts have the same author, we know exactly what happens next in Acts chapter 2. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And as he was doing this, he was taken up to heaven. So here he is with them, and now they see him go. Jesus has disappeared before. He's vanished from the crowd. He's vanished from before their sight. But this time, his vanishment isn't to vicinity. It isn't to a remote place. It isn't to a place of prayer or solitude. They witness him going up. And there's something about this that seems very odd to me and very strange to me, but it's not foreign to their experience because they knew their scriptures and there was another who went up. Do you remember? What was his name? Elijah. A chariot of fire comes down and Elijah is called into that chariot and as he enters that chariot, that chariot of fire ascends into the heavens. And he takes his cloak, which is blowing in the wind, and he tosses it down for Elisha, who will take over the prophetic role. Everybody reading, reading this in, the, in Luke's audience knows exactly that reference. Elijah has ascended, and Jesus is a kind of Elijah. And he's going back only this time. He's going to be sending someone to be with us, to minister to us, to encourage us, to bless us, to comfort us, to guide us, to inspire us. The theology, Paul often did some heavy lifting, is found in Ephesians. And I just want to take a minute to revisit that text in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 
I'm going to read in 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. What's Paul saying here? He prays that we might have the reflective space and time and the insight to know who he is and that we might have that truth revealed to us. I pray that the eye of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. We have a song about that too, don't we? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Right? Now my heart doesn't have any eyes. But now I'm talking like a foolish one. Because the text is referring to an, inter, an inner sight an understanding that doesn't come from a physical viewing. It's referring to a deep spiritual certainty, an insight, a recapitulation of that revelation mentioned just before. And this has given us this enlightenment, this understanding, this wisdom has given us not only so that we may know him better, but we may know the hope to which he's called us. And this is the phrase, what you've been called to. Here's the punchline. Called to the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. There it is. We're talking about resurrection power. And seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. That is ascension power. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that can be invoked, not only in this age, but in also in the ages to come. And God placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then Paul goes on to talk about how we are made alive in this Christ. The glory of Christ is revealed in the cross. My wife and I were just reading about that this morning in a beautiful book called Following Jesus by N.T. Wright. I highly recommend it. N.T. Wright traces following Jesus through the book of John. I've not chosen to do that today. But he highlights the way in which John selects the cross as the focal point of glory. We're right to know that our journeys are about that particular piece. But Luke and Paul take us beyond the cross into the resurrection and into the ascension to the glory that awaits there, the glory that is there. And Christ, our Redeemer and friend, Christ, the one who has modeled for us the glory of God in the love shown humankind in self-sacrifice on that cross, now has everything under his feet. If we would be his children, 
in crucifixion, let us also be his children in resurrection. And if we would be his children in resurrection, let us also be his children participating in the glory, not just of the cross, but of the king who now sits at the right hand of God and who orders the reality, the very reality that we participate in. I lose sight of Christ the King. I lose sight of the glory. In the mundaneness of my life and the ordinariness of everyday existence, the fact that there is a being with power beyond my capacity to appreciate or understand. The fact that there is a being who having journeyed with humankind knows my weaknesses and my afflictions, my sorrows and my tendencies. The fact that I have a king who understands me in every way and is not just my king but my priest. The fact that he sits in glory at the right hand of God and has all power and all dominion. That's a new reality. And it's something I invite you to consider because in the process of being born and living our lives and dying, in the process of our wins and losses, our ups and our downs, our victories, our fallings, in our sins, and in our moments of goodness and generosity, in all that we do in life, there is a Savior. And he's not just a babe in Bethlehem or a boy on a journey to self-discovery. He's not just a man beginning a new ministry. He's not a prophet or a Messiah only. He's not just somebody that will experience death. He's the resurrected one. And not just resurrected. Lazarus was resurrected. He is the ascended one. The glorious one. Who sits in the seat of power. And under whom everything has been placed. That is a God you can trust with your future. That is a glory you can look forward to. That is a glory in your contemplations in the third eye of your heart you can begin to appreciate as you contemplate his gifts. That is a glory and a power that will see you through to the very end of days. That is a king who is above all principalities and all powers. That is somebody who's worth you singing to even if you don't sing very well or know how to sing or like the hymnal very much. That is a, a, a savior worth dancing for, worth celebrating, worth talking about, worth sharing. That is a power that defeats Everything, we already know the outcome. Jesus has won. Jesus has won. Jesus has won. He and the Father are one. 
And as he prayed before he went in John, he wants you and I to be one with him and the Father. Let's pray. Lord, your glory is beyond our understanding. Your power is beyond our comprehension. Your grace is more than we can possibly wrap our minds around. But you sit in glory, and one day you'll judge the world. One day you'll make all things new, and until that day, don't let us lose sight of this other reality. Don't let us lose sight of the light and hope. Don't let us forget your king and your priest and you're our friend and our brother and our advocate and you want us to be one with you. Don't let us lose sight of the glory. For as we journey through our own sorrows, as we make our own sacrifices, as we learn to give of ourselves as you gave, we see glimpses, little tiny slivers of light revealing, hinting at the space you occupy of brilliant, blinding power and light. John the Revelator beheld it and he said, there is no sun or no moon for the light emanating from the throne is all the light that's needed. We would glimpse that light today and we would thank you for being not just a God of sacrifice, as if that were a small thing, but a God of resurrection and glorification and ascension and power. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.